from KQED. This past weekend, the shadow of nuclear war fell over Hawaii. North Korea has been firing test bombs. The U.S. president boasts about the size of his nuclear button. The dropping of nuclear weapons seems somehow all too possible again. In telling ourselves the history of the atomic bomb, we too often tend to think that they were only dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But there were other bombs that fell. They just weren't dropped on people. Not directly. They were dropped on islands. Islands in the South Pacific. The Marshall Islands. In the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean lies the tiny coral atoll of Bikini. It is here that Joint Army-Navy Task Force One will conduct the tests with the atom bomb. I'm Sandia Dirks, and you're listening to Cued Up. Not since the discovery of gunpowder has the world wondered over the ability of man to create such an agent of destruction. We tend to think of the damage a bomb does in terms of the moment it's dropped, the moment it falls from the sky and touches the ground, the people killed, the buildings flattened, the imploded land. But a nuclear bomb is different. Its victims aren't always apparent. The radiation lingers in the air, taking away the usefulness of the land and creeping into the body, into blood and cells. Reporter Sarah Craig went to visit Marshall Islanders in America, people who are still living decades later with the after effects of nuclear war. There's a lot of music that I hear. Yeah, they now because it's Greta Briand is sitting in the small office of her church. It's dimly lit and crowded, with stacks of pamphlets and posters rolled up in the corners. And it's crammed in the back of a Mexican church in the California suburb of Costa Mesa. The service is about to start, and we hear the Spanish choir singing through the thin walls. It won't die down at all. It won't because... Yeah, it's right next door. Right. Greta is the pastor's wife. She has long black hair streaked with gray. She's tucked a flower made from dried palm leaves behind one ear. And she sits on a folding chair, gently swinging her flip-flops back and forth above the ground. Then she reaches for a book off her desk. But I just, can I just show you what, this is what I take with me. It looks like a family photo album with shiny laminated pages. Where the cancer starts. She says cancer. Usually they say it starts right here, right here close to the nipples. Breast cancer. Yeah, where the milk comes out. She flips through the photo book on her lap. There's picture after picture of women in floral print moo-moos. They're all smiling for the camera. Also, I show them how to examine their breasts. I will sit with them and say, this is how you do it. All the way from all the way here, up, up, all the way. This I show them. Yeah, I will show them what to do. She doesn't just work at the church with her husband. She also does outreach as a health educator. She goes door to door, showing women how to check themselves for illnesses like breast cancer. In her Marshallese community, cancer is a fact of life. She passed away too from cancer. And another passed away. Another one. We don't know how many Marshallese have cancer. There's almost no data for this community. They're basically invisible. But because some Marshallese were in the path of nuclear fallout, we do know which cancers they're most likely to get. Thyroid, stomach, colon, and bone cancers. She keeps flipping through the pictures. Pass away from diabetes. Greta mentions diabetes too. It's another illness that affects the Marshallese. 
They're one of the poorest ethnic groups in the entire U.S., and most of them work in airports and factories, like Greta. She worked for a factory sewing artificial heart valves. So and then cancer in the yeah the uterus. So that's my sister, the one that is 40-some years, cancer survivor. Out of the almost 600 Marshallese who live here, in this small southern California suburb, every family has a cancer story. You go to everybody's home. Every home has a person sick or two with diabetes, cancer, heart disease. Greta, who's almost 70, hasn't gotten sick, but it scares her. It just makes you sad and... You don't want to think about it. If I don't have it, my grandkids, excuse me, (laughs) my grandkids or my great-grandkids might have cancer. Scientists believe genetic damage from radiation could be passed down. And it just breaks my heart. But that's why we got to live each day, because we don't know what will happen tomorrow. The reason tomorrow is uncertain is because of something that happened to her people when she was just a child. Greta grew up in the Marshall Islands in the 50s, on an island called Ligiup. It was beautiful, with swaying palm trees, sandy beaches, and coral reefs. Then came the bombs. In 1954, when Greta was five, the U.S. detonated its biggest nuclear bomb on Bikini Atoll, an island so close to Ligiep, she saw the explosion. It was like the sky was beautiful with orange color, and we thought it was something beautiful. We didn't know it was poison. The bomb Greta saw was known as the Bravo Bomb. A bomb with a nuclear force equivalent to a thousand Hiroshimas. Four days after the bomb was dropped, a French designer released Le Bikini two-piece swimsuit, named after the bombed-out Bikini Atoll. The bombs had captured the public's imagination, and nuclear nicknames were in style. Women were known as bombshells, and everything was atomic. Ladies and gentlemen, we are broadcasting from the elegant regal room at the Sheridan Riviera, where the unveiling of Clevo Degore's new ultra-bikini bathing suit will take place. There's a rustle at the curtain. Miss Lola Virginia is about to step through the curtain wearing the new Degore bikini. Here she comes! Bikini Island was also the subject of a Navy propaganda film made before the bombs. It shows military governor Ben Wyatt, dressed in uniform with a matching garrison cap, flying to the island on his seaplane. Then, the grainy black-and-white newsreel cuts to Wyatt talking to the islanders, who are sitting on the sand in front of him. You tell them that the United States government now wants to attempt to turn this great destructive force into something good for mankind, and that these experiments here at Bikini are the first step in that direction. The film shows people leaving their island willingly. They didn't. 
Between 1946 and 1958, the U.S. moved the Marshallese from island to island to clear a path for the bombs. There are 29 coral atolls in the Marshall Islands. Two of those atolls, Bikini Atoll and Enowitak Atoll, were bombed a total of 67 times over 12 years. But did the U.S. government lie? About the risks? The answer may have been in the wind. The government says no inhabited islands were supposed to be in the path of the Bravo bomb. They claim the wind shifted suddenly, right before the bomb was dropped. And that shift was what sent radioactive fallout to islands where people lived. But an Air Force senior weather technician named Jean O. Kerbo, stationed on Rongerik Atoll, says the wind never shifted. It had been blowing in his direction for four straight days. There are signs the U.S. government suspected the health risks, too. American doctors, funded by what was then called the Atomic Energy Commission, conducted medical studies and experimental surgeries on some Marshallese, including children. They injected them with radioisotopes and other unexplained substances. All of this happened without their consent. That's a Navy propaganda film with the military governor telling the islanders it will be all right, that the bombs will be a good thing. Tell him that's fine. Everything being in God's hands, it must be good. This justification that being in God's hands must be good holds a cruel irony, because for Greta, her faith, it keeps her going. When we pray, we pray for the people with cancer. We pray for all the sickness that we know our people are experiencing right now. We pray for them. One thousand three hundred and thirty-nine miles from Costa Mesa is the prairie town of Enid, Oklahoma. It's an industry town built on oil and wheat, where grain silos break up the horizon. It's another place Marshallese have come to settle. They originally came here to go to Phillips University, a religious school. The school is closed now, but the Marshallese are still coming. Most end up working in the freezing cold meatpacking plant. But Terry Mote is a bit different. He's worked for the library, the police, and now he translates Marshallese for the county health department. If I'm coming here for health, and then they might have another issue like with the kids at school, I have to be ready for other issues that they might ask me for. Part of his job is doing home health visits. Terry stops by Stanley Jamores. He lives in a single-story bungalow, painted robin egg blue. The paint is peeling, and it looks vacant from the outside. 
Stanley used to work at the meatpacking plant. He was born after the bombs were dropped, but his family history on the islands goes way back. He's the great-great-grandson of the chief who ruled Bikini Atoll. Before they detonated the Bravo bomb on Bikini Atoll, the U.S. relocated Stanley's family, split them up, and sent them to different islands. One of those islands was Rongarik Atoll. No one had lived there because there was no food or water. But when people were moved there, they began to starve. Stanley should be royalty now. Instead, he's unemployed. And because the Marshallese are considered qualified immigrants, he can live and work in Oklahoma, but he can't get Medicaid. Neither can the rest of his people. It's a bit complicated. It's not like the U.S. didn't do anything for them. Decades after the bombs, they did provide some compensation. And they still provide aid, like health care, to people who live on the Marshall Islands. Living in Oklahoma, Terry and Stanley don't get anything. You feel frustrated, kind of mad and angry sometimes, because the promise is broken. There was no written promise, but the Bikini Islanders didn't understand that they would never be able to go home. Like what immigrant promised people of Bikini, that they will take care of them as long as they live. They talk a little more about Stanley's family and his recent trip to Hawaii. As Terry gets ready to go, Stanley tells him to wait and goes to his freezer. After rummaging through bags of ice, he pulls out giant fillets of fish with their eyes and scales still on. He's brought them back from Hawaii. Fish is a big deal for the Marshallese because they don't get to eat it that much. Stanley was sharing something that was downright sacred. Remember when you visit the house and they give you anything? Take it. If you not take it, then that's against our culture. So I'm taking my fish. <laughs> Some nights, Terry travels an hour and a half to a Chinese grocery in Oklahoma City just to bring back fish to his family. The traveling doesn't phase him. We're navigators. And moving is part of our culture. And moving or migrating started way back many years ago from our time of our ancestors when they travel from island to island. They navigated by the stars, using charts made of sticks and reading patterns in the water. We use the sound of the wave, even the wave that hit your canoe. You know the direction where you are. This is the history Terry grew up with. He was raised on Majuro Atoll by his mother with 13 sisters and brothers in the 1970s, decades after the bombing. If we're lucky, we have some food for the table. Growing up, his father wasn't around much, and when he was, he usually drank away his paycheck. Terry walked seven miles to get to school. Then one day, he picked up an old car tire. He rolled it down the road and ran after it. It helped me to go to school real fast. And on time, I began a track field star, right, fastest get into school. He got so fast, he went to compete in the Micronesian Games. It's like the Olympics, but just for the islands of Micronesia. 
He ran on the 4x400 relay team, and they won. He says they still hold his country's record. A year later, he graduated from college. He got a job at a museum and met his wife. But he wanted to come to the U.S. because a lot of his extended family was here. In his culture, family is a much bigger concept. It's not just the mom, the dad, and the kids. He saved up his money and flew to Oklahoma. For years, Terry skipped lunches to save more money to bring his mom, wife, and kids over, too. At first, things were good. The whole family was back together. He had steady work. But then his mom got sick. She had diabetes and was hospitalized for six months. But then we, we had little knowledge on, you know, when you stay in the hospital for certain days, the, the bill is running. So by the time she get out from the hospital, I was so surprised. The bill totaled $50,000. Remember, back on his islands, the U.S. helps pay for health care. But it's bare bones. They don't have an oncologist or cancer treatment facilities. It shocked him that it costs so much here. The bill was so high, partly because the Marshallese don't qualify for Medicaid. Like my family, we never have anything, you know, and we never hold anything to anyone. Terry was struggling to pay his debt. He was working two jobs and not sleeping for days at a time. I was scared to go to bed because by not paying your bills, someone might come and take you to jail. Back then, he was the pastor at his Mormon church. If I feel this way, then I, I believe other people with the same issue are feeling the same. He was right. People came to me and asked for help. And they said, hey, can the church help me pay my bills? His mom getting sick, him learning about all these illnesses, that's how he got his job at the county health department. He called them up because he was wondering if they could help. He was waking up to the fact his community can't afford to be sick, but they also can't avoid it. It's not just the cancer. The Marshallese have among the highest rate of diabetes in the world. And it's connected to the testing. The bombs contaminated the island's foods. Coconuts and breadfruit were now off limits. So the Marshallese started to eat processed foods like spam and white rice. Maybe, like so many, they would have started eating unhealthy food anyways. I mean, that was what the occupying Americans ate. But after the bombs, they didn't really have a choice. Good morning. How are you today? I'm Good, good, good. Dinah Josiah has acute diabetes. She's only 63, but she stands hunched over, leaning on her granddaughter for support. You remember me? Yeah. I'm Janet. Yeah. Okay. The clinic nurse, Janet Cordell, shuffles Dinah into the Enid Community Clinic. It's a brick building squeezed between a closed pharmacy and defunct auto shop. And it's free. So you're taking your medicine? Yeah. Okay. How often are you taking it? All every morning and night. Good. You have to take it until it's all gone. Dinah is dying. Her kidneys are failing and she needs dialysis. But it's too expensive. She came here from the Marshall Islands to get better health care. She didn't realize she couldn't get insurance. Insurance isn't even a concept that's familiar to her. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. The free clinic helps, but not enough. You know, we'll help you as much as we can, and you need to remember that, keeping your diabetes under control. Okay. Janet tells Dinah when her condition gets bad enough, she can be admitted to the ER, but only in a crisis. Getting that wound cleared up is going to help. Okay. 
but it's not going to cure it. We'll see you later. Give me a hug. At the clinic, Janet sees more and more older people like Dinah coming to Oklahoma for health care. They can't get it home. They have no idea they can't afford it. She worries they're just coming here to die. Dinah's next stop is the hospital. She has a large sore on her back. It's a little smaller than a handprint and bright pink. It's caused by her diabetes, and it's something the free clinic can't handle. Her granddaughter pushes her in the hospital's old clanky wheelchair and translates for the nurse. This visit will come out of her family's pocket. Can you ask her, is the pain all the time, or does it come and go? The nurses are making sure the sore isn't infected. Dinah feels ashamed to see the doctor because she's not insured. We're going to measure now. I'm sorry, I know this is uncomfortable. It's kind of amazing she's even here at all. Even though so many people are sick, it's sort of taboo in their culture to talk about sickness. They feel like God is punishing them. Everything being in God's hands, it must be good. Terry stands in front of a handful of teenagers, clustered at the back of the multi-purpose room of his church. He's not the pastor here anymore. He's now the youth leader. What time you should go to bed? Nine. Eleven? Nine. Nine, ten, thirty, eight? Seven? He's trying to get these Marshallese kids to take care of themselves. Terry's been organizing a Micronesian coalition. Pastors, teachers, nurses, people who care about health care. That's not just Marshallese, that's other islanders from the South Pacific, too. He wants to raise their political voice. He's even tried to work with local lawmakers to pass legislation, but it hasn't worked yet. So he's applying for citizenship. He wants to run for city council. Right now, the best he can do is to tell the kids to get enough sleep. Some of you guys might be playing Xbox, and it's already midnight. And what happens when you go, go to school tomorrow? You'll, you'll look like an old man. <laughs> the battle now is not about the bombs anymore. It's a much bigger battle. It goes further than just cancer or diabetes. It's poverty in the lives of these kids. And it all goes back to when the U.S. occupied and destroyed their ancestors' tropical paradise. I was texting Terry recently, and he told me he was in Iowa. I asked why. He wrote back another funeral. He goes to as many as he can. And there's a lot. Teach me to pray to my Father above. Teach me to know of the Things that are right, teach me, teach me to walk in the 
Live. Thanks to reporter Sarah Craig. The story about the Marshallese won Narrative Lee's Untold Story Award. You can see photos Sarah took and read the whole Narrative Lee story online at narrative.ly. This radio piece was edited by me. I'm Sandhya Dirks, and you're listening to Cued Up. Senior editor of Cued Up is Julia McAvoy. Executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. Thanks for listening.